Hi, and welcome to the last episode, episode eight of season one of the Who Rescued Whom Canine Rescue Tales podcast. Today we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to be interviewing our veterinarian because we have some questions that have come up through the season, through the stories that we've told. And so we wanted to talk to him about that. Uh, Dr. Sofol is a native of Colorado. He grew up on a small family farm surrounded by animals, both big and small. He participated in 4-H over the course of many years and that led him to becoming a veterinarian. He went on to Colorado State University's College of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences in 2000, and he started working in the Black Forest community of Colorado later that year. 2014, we moved from Nebraska to Colorado Springs, and since I was retired military, uh, we started taking our dogs to the Army veterinarian at uh, Fort Carson, which was great, but it was a long trip, and each time we went, we always uh, saw a different vet, so we started looking for a local veterinarian and uh, came across Dr. Sofel's practice. And uh, Dr. Sofel quickly became our favorite uh, veterinarian. Diane and I have, have had pets and dogs most of our lives and uh, I think we both agreed quickly that we enjoyed Dr. Sofel's uh, bedside manner and really took a lot of time with us, more so than other vets, to explain what was going on and to diagnose what was going on with our uh, dogs. So we really uh, grew attached to Dr. Sofel. And Dr. Sofel opened a new practice, Ponderosa Vet Clinic. So welcome, Dr. Sofel. And what we, we thought we would ask you to start out by telling us how you came to currently have Ponderosa Vet Clinic, because I think you started in the Black Forest, like we said earlier. So if you can just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Thank you, Diane. I graduated vet school in 2000, and I came down to a vet clinic here in the Black Forest that I worked for, for many years. That clinic actually went through the Black Forest Fire of 2013, and we continued on to work after the fire in a new clinic. But shortly after the fire, the clinic was sold to a corporation that I did not want to stay with. So I decided to go do my own practice at that time. It was a motivating factor for me to get out there and do that. So I started the loan process and looked for places to go. We were able to find a, actually a basement of a house looking structure. It was in an accountant's office that we were able to start our Ponderosa Veterinary Clinic in 2015 and just continued to grow from getting our doors open. I'd been around the community for many, you know, 15 plus years. So people knew my name and knew where I was. So they they did come in quite large numbers. So we continued to grow and, you know, we were able to go to the next step of buying land and looking into building our clinic that we presently are in. We, we started there about six months ago. And it's in a building that's actually made for a veterinary clinic. And we've really enjoyed getting into the bigger size can continue to grow. We want to try and control it to some degree, but it is, you know, it's a very busy place, high growth area in Colorado Springs that we are dealing with. You know, it's a very rewarding career, but it can be difficult. And just about the discussion, like what we're going to have here today is always a hard thing for people to come to grips with sometimes. I just want to uh, compliment you that even though you're 
practice has grown exponentially because, like you said, first started off in, in that smaller building and whatnot. It still feels like you're a small town vet. You like still spend quality time with us. We never feel like you're rushed to get out of there. And that means the like, world to us as uh, dog owners and whatnot. So thank you. There's a current theme in our podcast and, and friends talk about the like, pain of deciding how or when to euthanize their animals. It's a traumatic experience. The dogs and animals typically live a shorter lifespan than, than humans, so it happens uh, several times uh, throughout our, our like life. So we just wanted to uh, talk to you because uh, you've helped us make those decisions. Uh, so just wanted to ask you, uh, what goes into your decision to uh, recommend euthanasia? I think, like many of our clients, you know, we're all interested in quality of life for our pets. And I think that's the conversation that I try to talk with people. Many, many of these people, the majority, I would say, I've known for many years. And that's the part of my job that I think helps me is just knowing many of these people through many different pets, many different situations versus like working in an emergency clinic situation. You don't know these people at all. And it's sometimes more difficult to have these conversations. You know, how I describe it a lot of times to people, just being straightforward with them and saying, are there more good days than bad days? But if it's starting to flip around where there's more bad days than good days, then we have to start talking about how how the pet's overall quality of life is. I think eating and drinking, mobility, those are easy things for us to kind of gauge. And that's a lot of times what, you know, we talk about with people is just, you know, our animals laying around all the time, like 99% of the time, are they laying in their own excrements? Just, you know, it's not what we think about as a good quality of life at that point. Um, pain, I don't think any of us, even people, we don't want them in pain. So it's if we can't make them comfortable, I think that's another big situation for people to evaluate and, and discuss with each case. I mean, unfortunately, it is a day-to-day -day thing of my job, and it is something that, you know, every case is different, and you, you have to, you know, look at people's you know, what they can tell you, because there's our best way to connect with this animal is what people see at home. And that's, that's really what we have to try and come across and listening. You know, that's, that's the biggest thing. Right. And your answer to those kinds of questions for us really helped us make our decision with Cody several years ago. We had adopted a senior from Rocky Mountain Collie Rescue, uh, Cody. He was about 11 and a half. We only had him for a year and a half but yet it felt like a lifetime, but you made it very clear and you asked the right questions that we didn't know to ask. So that was important. Have you ever had a client that just refused euthanasia and you knew that that dog was going to just leave in pain and there was nothing you could do? Or have you had to get over a hump while they're there? And, and that may be more for a person that you didn't know. Like you said, you've known a lot of these people. Mm -hmm. So I think... Having that bond with a client does help a lot when you don't have that knowledge of their life, you know, past experiences, it's, it's difficult. There are some that are not ready. 
you know, I have sometimes with a family, a husband and wife, one is ready, one is not. And we talk about the case and yeah, sometimes they do go home and, you know, my goal is to have them, you know, just like we talked, where are the quality of life questions here and people start to realize that this is not a good quality of life and we in some ways are being selfish keeping some of these pets for us and not thinking about the pet. I have people where they've wanted to go home and have a night just to spend that time to say goodbye. I am fine with that if, you know, a lot of these pets are chronically ill another 24 hours, 48 hours for people to come to peace with things because it's ultimately the client's decision on this situation. And, you know, all of us, it's going to be a little different for each one. And, you know, I get asked a lot of times, what would you do if it was your pet? And I go over the same stuff that we've talked here. It's just, you know, what's happening at home, eating and drinking and getting around. Are we laying around constantly? All those types of questions, you know, and I've sometimes spent a lot of time talking with people about this because it's just, it is such a difficult decision. It's not one to take lightly. Right. I can't remember exactly what you like told us, but with like Cody, we were, you know, looking for different options. He, he was having a like hard time getting up. He mm-hmm. was, you know, he was, he just, he would struggle mm-hmm. to get up. And, and you basically explained to us that we can't treat him like humans, like just keeping him comfortable that's really not an option mm-hmm. you know long term mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that you know that we just can't keep them going like we do humans i think some of it's a factor of size when you have a little 10 pound chihuahua or dachshund you can help move around easier i've dealt with that with my own little dachshunds you know compared to a 70 or 80 pound dog like cody was it's a lot harder to help those bigger animals up and down steps and things like that. I believe Cody, what was going on with there, we see a lot in the older large breed dogs. They just can't get up anymore. And it's a progressing disease that's happened over months. You know, there's going to reach a time where they can't get up anymore. Yes, there's an arthritis component, but there's also this more of a neurologic disease. It's not painful. They're not suffering from it, but it's, the dignity for those pets to have in that situation. Right. And I think there's another component too that I'm sure you have thought of at some point, but we can communicate with humans a lot more easily than we can a dog or any pet that you would have to make this decision about. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when Cody or Missy or any of our other dogs that have gotten to this point in their lives, they are communicating to us by the fact that they can't get up and the things that you suggested earlier that are they're not eating or they're not drinking. That's a communication tool that they're using, I think, to let us know. One of our guests before, Caroline, down in South Carolina, had talked about really it's the merciful thing. People need to understand that it's mercy and love when you let them go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, very much. So it's a very tough part of our job that I don't think as pre-veterinary students, we realize how much of that we get involved with and the question of this time. You know, I didn't really think of it much when I was before being a vet, you know, how much, you know, having to guide people through this type of choice. Since you actually do it, is it emotional for, for you too, for each animal, even though you don't 
you know, know them well, they're, you're still, they're like, that is it still a traumatic thing for you? It is. I mean, there's, you can't do this without having some emotion to it, but I, you also, the objectivity of it, that you have to look at things in the health, you know, I've been a vet now for 20 years and I say that you've seen a lot, but every day you see something different that, you know, in certain circumstances, I know there are things we cannot help. You know, cancer is such a common thing. We cannot turn back the clock on anybody's age. It is, unfortunately, these pets don't live as long as we would like. We would all like them to live 30 or 40 years or longer, and it doesn't happen that way. I think our profession, we're learning more and more what we need to do to help ourselves, because I know I've lost veterinary classmates to both suicide and alcoholism and the stresses that we deal with in our profession and this type of thing. We, we deal with patients that cannot talk to us. We deal with this euthanasia part that we are, you know, pretty much faced with. If not every day, it's, it's fairly regular. And many, many of them are health-based things. Some are cost-based and those are even the harder ones when decisions are made simply due to cost. And it's where are some of these helpful things with rescue organizations? I've, I've known multiple ones that they do help have as an option. And you can at least talk to people about, hey, here are some other things that we can talk about for rescue organizations to adopt your pet or to take on this, this case type of thing. Well, that's great that you do that. I, I hadn't even thought about that factor that maybe somebody can't afford it. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't realize the enormous pressure on a veterinarian in those situations day in and day out that 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 could psychologically be difficult. Can you just briefly explain the process for our listeners to understand what exactly goes into it? And Mm -hmm. I know with us, it was more peaceful than we realized the first time we did this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have changed my technique over my career. Uh, Even before vet school, I was in a job where I was having to perform euthanasias. I mean, my background with the farm animals and things, there were euthanasias, just different things. But as far as what my technique is now, it's a two-part process where I do a sedative just to put the patient into a plane of anesthesia. That to me has just made things so much more peaceful for pets in my experience that I have done it that way probably 15 to 18 years now. And when we do the second part that is actually injecting the solution to stop their heart, stop their breathing, and stop their brain activity. They really do not feel it. I tell people we're trying to make this process as peaceful as we can. If it's not going well, we have to stop and rethink what we're doing. You know, trying, you know, having this same conversation I'm having right here with almost every single euthanasia, even if I feel like I've done one for their family before, you don't No, I don't remember, and I just want everybody to know what's going to happen. Our ultimate goal is to make it as peaceful for everybody. I have people that stay with their pets. I have people that don't. Some will stay for the sedation part. And, you know, again, we talk about all of this stuff before we do it, and they all can make their decision. You know, that's that's what I think my job is a lot of times, or here are your options. You know, this is what we can do or what's going to happen. 
even with a regular medical case. That's how I view things a lot. After our discussion about euthanasia with Dr. Sofel, we asked him to tell us about Cisco, his special rescue found in the Black Forest. So much of why I am a veterinarian is because of this type of case. He was a, a dog that was found by a good Samaritan on a Wednesday before Thanksgiving in a ditch alongside the road out in the country. He had been hit by a car. The good Samaritan picked him up and took him home and gave him some horse meds to help for pain that actually hurt his liver in some ways. He had a fractured pelvis, collapsed lung. His tail had been damaged or probably pulled away from his pelvis to where it caused nerve damage where he couldn't urinate or defecate for the first week after we had him in the clinic. This good Samaritan brought him in the Friday after Thanksgiving. So he had spent 48 hours in this condition as soon as we saw him come in, you could tell his breathing pattern was that of a dog with a collapsed lung. So we fixed that right away and he just went to sleep. And the decision was we were going to just support him at that point because we did not have an owner. We were going to see if any owner would turn up. Nobody ever really did for several weeks down the road. We did find out what maybe his history was, but it was around this Thanksgiving time when this had all happened. So I had started taking him home because of the treatment he needed. There was a snowstorm that was coming in, a blizzard that we didn't know if we were gonna be able to make it into the clinic. And, you know, I'll never forget out there in the blizzard, you know, he had started walking and he had kind of hobbled out to the mailbox post and he lift, tried to lift his leg to go pee. And, you know, right then and there, I knew he was getting better because of, you know, him knowing that he needed to pee. I was. Sounds funny that, you know, you think about that, but as a vet, you know, that's a very good sign to see. And, you know, from that day on, he just kept going back and forth with me to work. And then I bring him home with me. And I mean, he became my shadow. I mean, wherever I was, he was with me. And there are very few days I don't really even think about him at all times, you know, with my other pets I have now and just for the 13 years that I had him, you look at why do you become a vet is to help animals in need. And he was in such need, you know, but he gave me back so much love and companionship over his life that he just was what you would call a perfect dog to me. And this talk about euthanasia and all these things, he even, you know, the day before he passed away, I did not have to make the decision to let him go because I think just how he would be, he, he didn't want me to have to come to that decision for him. I think a lot of people hope that that's the situation, and I wish it was more that way, where we didn't have to make a decision, but right. went for like a mile walk the day before he passed away. That afternoon, he started to cough a little bit, and the next morning, I had to take him to the clinic, and he passed away in my arms. I mean, wow, you can't script any easier way to let him go than me just being there with him and you know he passed away in a veterinary clinic just the way that i found him in a veterinary clinic and wow he's made an impression on me and it's just always you know i thought when he was gone i'm like what am i going to do now that i don't have him to look at as my you know reason to be a vet but 
you know, you don't forget them. I mean, he touched me so much that, you know, I'll never forget him. Do you have any advice to dog owners who no longer want to get another dog because it's too painful to lose them? It's a question that comes up sometimes while we are in the room after we've put their pet to sleep. Oh, wow. I mean, some people say I'm never getting another animal again. They will be back sometimes the next day with a pet because they feel like they couldn't <laughs> deal with in a way, they're probably replacing what they had lost, but the house was too quiet, they would say. And I have other people that never do get another pet. You know, they just cannot take the heartache. This is where the many rescues scattered across the U.S. can come in. There are many dogs that need homes, thousands of dogs, actually millions of dogs. We encourage those who have had a difficult time after a beloved pet passes to go to a rescue. Look at the available pets. You'll never be sorry that you saved another one. Our conversation with Dr. Soulful continues. Well, this has been very helpful, and we hope that our listeners, through our stories and through this interview, will come to understand that this is a normal part of having an animal, a pet of any kind, that at some point we're going to lose them. And uh, to have someone as compassionate as you are uh, to help us through that process. I can't imagine that there's too many in the number of people that wouldn't come back to you, but I suppose you're right. It's the psychology of it and, and possibly they, they don't. But hopefully what we put out with our first uh, trailer and in our episode that was two episodes ago, episode six, we say that, you know, we give the statistic 3.3 million dogs in our U.S. shelters every year and 600 and some thousand of them don't make it out and they are euthanized because there's no one there. But there's families everywhere that could open up to just one dog and rescue. Yeah, the rescue groups that I've worked with, I mean, they have so much more compassion than I feel I have sometimes because of what they see. They go out to these puppy mills and they're getting these animals in such poor, poor conditions that, you know, they've never even touched the ground because they've just been in a cage their whole life there to produce more puppies. It's a conversation that more needs to be talked about as far as, you know, rescue dogs, you know, those are a lot of times the rescue groups, they are looking at that as, rescue these guys instead of us having to make those tough decisions about euthanasia. My heart goes to them because of all their hard work, all the numbers of animals that they save. These dogs come out and they're not perfect, but I think the majority come and they get a loving home. They can flourish. Very you know, special cases to see. I've experienced many, many, many of them over the years. And just like Cisco, it sounds like he really flourished for 13 years. Uh, from your description, I wouldn't have thought he'd made it that long. Speaking of rescues, each week we make a donation to the rescue of choice of the guests that we interview. So is there a rescue that you'd like us to donate for this episode? If you would like to, I think the Wild Blue Animal Rescue in Black Forest would be my choice. They are mostly a cat rescue, but I've worked with them for many, many years. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Sofel, for the time that you uh, gave to us today. Uh, we appreciate that and your veterinary clinic, Honduras Veterinary Clinic in Colorado Springs. 
thank you for all you do for all of us who own pets. Thank you. You're very welcome. The Who Rescued Whom Canine Rescue Tales podcast makes a donation to the rescue of choice in honor of the guests we feature on each episode. Dr. Sofel would like this episode's donation to go to Wild Blue Refuge for Cats and Kittens. As he said, Wild Blue Cats is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to saving the precious lives of cats and kittens who are abandoned, abused, neglected, displaced, or surrendered, and to find them permanent homes or provide lifetime sanctuary or foster care. Wild Blue Cats is located in the Black Forest area of Colorado Springs, Colorado, nestled in the woods where not only their cats enjoy the beautiful habitat, but so do their volunteers, adopters, and visitors. You can see pictures of Dr. Sofal and Cisco, show notes, and an entire script for the hearing impaired on the episode page of our website, whorescuedwhom.com. Although this is the last episode of season one, we will be back in the fall with more rescue stories. Do you have a rescue story you'd like to share? We'd love to talk with you about being a part of our podcast. Just go to the Be a Guest page on our website, whorescuedwhom.com, and fill out our future guest information form. You can also email us at info at whorescuedwhom.com or message us through our Facebook page. This podcast was edited and produced by Mike McClellan of podcastps.com. Mike is our editor and producer, and Mike is the composer of all of the music you heard on this episode. Thank you.